Welcome to the Drawdown Agenda podcast, a collaboration between the Sustainability Agenda and Drawdown, a truly inspiring project that ranks and evaluates the 100 most powerful carbon reduction solutions that can help us achieve drawdown when greenhouse gas concentrations peak and begin to fall. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every fortnight, I speak to leading drawdown researchers who have worked to identify and measure different drawdown solutions. We explore the research, discuss how these solutions work in practice, and learn how we can take collective action to achieve drawdown and help reverse global warming. Why does it seem abnormal or part of some liberal progressive agenda to do what's right for people, you know, and for for the economy long term, you know, and, and for nature? Why is that weird? Why is that strange? Because it hasn't been normalized, because there are no positive social incentives except among uh, a very small percentage of, of people around the world to have those kinds of conversations. And I, I liken this one to the changes in our social norms, uh, for example, around same-sex marriage in many countries over the last just 20 years. There's no reason why we can't not just envision, but facilitate the same kind of societal evolution uh, that has taken place around women's suffrage, around civil rights, around human rights, around um, slavery, around uh, same-sex marriage. Why can't we do the same thing in, in one generation around nature and around climate change. I'm very pleased today to welcome Brett Jenks to the podcast. Brett is the president and CEO of RARE, a global conservation organization whose mission is to inspire change so people and nature thrive. It's a global leader in using behavior change to achieve long-lasting conservation results. For over 40 years, RARE has empowered local leaders to inspire community pride and sustainable natural resource management so that both people and nature thrive. So uh, thank you very much, Brett, for joining me today on the Drawdown Agenda podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, I'm really looking forward to talking to you about the work that you do at RARE and to understand the uh, latest thinking, really, and research about the impact of individual behavior on climate change. And um, I know you have done some recent research looking at the drawdown listings, uh, priorities, and identified some uh, important priorities, I guess, when it comes to individual behavior. I'm just wondering first, maybe if you can just tell me a little bit about RARE uh, and what you do. Yeah, happy to. So RARE is a global conservation organization. Uh, We've worked in about 50 countries over the last 20 years. And in each of those countries, we have trained local leaders and mentored them and equipped them with the the tools uh, needed to influence the behavior of people living in and around marine protected areas, cloud forests, rainforests. Essentially, our mission is to inspire change so people and nature thrive. And what we've become pretty adept at is identifying the local leaders who can help influence the behavior of farmers and fishers so that they can um, potentially get greater yields while protecting the natural resource base on which they depend. And over the course of those 20 years, we've learned a a good bit about behavior change, uh, about the the nature of human decision making and how conservationists can be more effective uh, with their influence strategies. That's really interesting, uh, Brett. And I'd like to talk just maybe a little bit about behavior change. Um, The scale of the problem and I guess the the time frame we're looking at is terrifying. 
And daily in the newspapers, we see uh, research about the scale of the problem and how again and again and again, things are getting worse much faster than people predicted, much faster than computer models. And um, and the the various ways in which we can respond to these crises, particularly when it comes to to, uh, climate change, and different parties, different stakeholders, I guess, have have a different role. When it comes to my individual behaviour, it can sometimes just seem overwhelming. You know, my, my children uh, are, are, are very aware and, and, and watch my uh, recycling behavior and my plastic bag consumption and so forth. And yet you read, you know, that uh, China's opening, you know, tens of airports, they're doubling and tripling air traffic and economic growth is continuing apace. It just seems like a huge machine that's just going faster and faster. You know, what is the potential for individual behavior change and indeed for individual behavior change to spread to become group behavior change it does seem daunting to read the newspaper each day um, the narrative that I think we experience in the United States right now is one of hopelessness you you mentioned the newspapers the headlines you know your your sense of uh, impending doom and I and I think that's natural I think that's what most people are experiencing today in fact that um, Somebody told me the American Psychiatric Association has recently come out with something that stated a certain percentage of of youth today attribute their depression and anxiety to fears of climate change. So this is becoming, you know, literally an existential uh, question, an emotional question. I think what we need is a new narrative. The challenge is that hopelessness uh, curtails action. If we want people to take action, they need at least a modicum of hope. So we recently looked at the drawdown uh, uh, research. We looked at the drawdown list of the 100 things we can do to address global greenhouse gas emissions. And we asked ourselves, so which of those could we, the people, we as individuals, begin to move the, the, the needle on? And this is important because... Often, people need to act their way into new beliefs. If you've ever tried to convince someone who vehemently disagrees with you by arguing with them logically or providing facts or even citations from peer-reviewed journal research, you, you, you further entrench their view. Uh, you, you make it tribal. Um, the, the, you, you, you remove facts and logic and reason from the debate, and, and it, it becomes more like a, a you know a, a feudal a tribal uh, war engagement. We need a new narrative that says we can do something. And so the good news is, there uh, of the of the 100 drawdown insights, there are about 30 behaviors. Some that would be appropriate for you or I. Uh, some that would be more appropriately applied by, let's say, uh, a farmer in the developing tropics. Um, but there's about 30 actions that we can take that if, if um, a significant percentage of people around the world took them, we could address fully one third of global greenhouse gases, which runs counter to the narrative that says, well, unless there's an act of Congress or some amazing new technology from Silicon Valley, there's nothing I can do. And that's just not true. Uh, so what, what we're hoping is to not just convince um, uh, people, but to show people, to demonstrate people, to, to build a sense of momentum that people are able to take action that actually makes a difference. 
that's going to make them much more likely to vote, uh, to encourage the, the kinds of policy changes down the road that we know inevitably are, are needed, but it gets the ball rolling. We, we have to begin to concern ourselves with this growing hopelessness. So I'm interested in like, talking about what, what are the, the four or five most important or impactful things we can do. Uh, just to be clear, is this really a kind of all things being equal? So we're not talking about political lobbying, new laws and things like that. We're just saying these are things that individuals can do today under normal circumstances. There's no question that it's important for people to vote. It's important for people to let their representatives in Congress or Parliament or in their government understand that they care, they're interested, they're worried, and they want to see political action. Policy matters. Technology also matters. What's important about individual behavior change, though, is that it also matters and it's within your control day to day. You know, we only have elections every couple of years in the United States. It's not like we're going to flip Congress and get a carbon tax, you know, in the next 18 months. Um, So what can people do until then? There's a lot that we can do as individuals. And so I'd I'd be happy to go through some of those. Yes, no, I'm definitely interested in talking about that. I mean, I guess you you were talking about this uh, polarization, and it is very polarized, particularly in America. But really, we've known for some time that certain behaviors, at least, are not good for the planet. How well have we done in actually, you know, responding to that and, and actually changing our behavior? Because, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about Drawdown is it introduces a whole range and very powerful things that we can do that aren't so well known. But there are a core of things that we do know that we can do. How have we been doing that? And what's been stopping individual behavior? Because we know if we drive less or if we, you know, fly less, uh, that, that, that is very impactful. So Rare specializes in behavior change, as I mentioned. And over the last year, we've put together um, a, a network of some of the leading behavioral scientists in, in the world, um, partnering with the Stanford Design School uh, to bring in design thinking, to, to be more empathetic, to think more clearly about where, where we find people today. You know, the average person asking themselves the, the same question you're asking how are they? How, how do we influence their decision making about how to spend their time and their energy? What to do about climate change? And and what we found is the traditional approach to uh, influencing behavior is broken. You you can't just tell someone they're wrong. You can't provide them facts and information. You can't send them a peer reviewed journal article that that says here's scientific validation that that I'm right and you're wrong. people just get further entrenched in their beliefs. I think this is something we see thanks to social media these days where, you know, you end up walking away from friends who who simply won't agree with you politically um, and the the divisiveness grows. What speaks to people, what influences people can can be sort of, well, well, let me just explain to you how, how we've thought about this. We started we started reading everything we could find from literally neuroscience, behavioral economics, social psychology, evolutionary biology. We looked around for to, to scientists who had started to catalog all of the insights from all of this research the last 25 years. And really, you know, there, there are a couple hundred really interesting insights. Um, the, the question is, how do you then bring them into a practice to become more effective in influencing the behavior, whether whether you're trying to convince your spouse to compost 
you know, or your children to, to, to walk to school uh, or your organization to, uh, you know, to, to, to take less flights, you know, to meetings. How do we make that kind of change now that we know that, 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 that these kinds of behaviors actually matter? And so we, we identified three big categories uh, that, are, that are underutilized. One is emotional appeals. Mostly environmentalists have tried to invoke fear to instill a sense of, of, of panic, if you will. And that has built a, a constituency for conservation. There's a lot, millions and millions of dues-paying members of environmental organizations who worry about the plight of endangered species, um, who worry about the elephants and the rhinos and the tigers and the lions and the, and the polar bears. And it's built a constituency, but it hasn't necessarily changed the behavior of the people who are the greatest threat to those species, number one. So what, what is emotionally appealing about nature or about taking climate, uh, new climate action that we can tap into. So I'll come back to this, but that's one category, emotional appeals. And, and we, we believe what's missing is a positive emotion uh, about taking action. Um, the second big, big category, if you will, is social incentives. And this is probably the most important one. We are inherently illogical animals. We like to think of ourselves, and economists would have us believe, that we are so rational that we make every decision with a kind of perfect calculus based on the, the opportunities and the costs or the investment and the return. Um, and yet that's just not true. We do so many things that are illogical every day as human beings. We buy clothes that are uh, trendy and expensive but have no greater quality other than uh, what, 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 uh, our rep, how it might influence our reputation with a very small circle of people around us, um, we, we might buy the same material with a different brand on it. How illogical is that? And yet we take that for granted. That's, that's, just, that's just fashion. That's just style. Um, but we don't think about how social forces are, are influencing those kinds of decisions. Marketers do. Some marketers have gotten very good at this. But how do we use some of those same insights and those same skills to leverage social incentives so that it's normal to talk about what you're eating and where it comes from uh, over dinner so that it's normal to to consciously be searching for ways to reduce your your carbon footprint so that it's a normal behavior to talk about uh, the, the practices you use it, at work or at home with, with the, the choices you make around food or food waste, um, the, the kinds of products that you purchase, the kinds of questions you ask the people who are making your products. Why does it seem abnormal or uh, sort of some part of some liberal progressive agenda to do what's right for people you know, and for, for the economy long term you know, and, and for nature? Why is that weird? Why is that strange? Because it hasn't been normalized, because there are no positive social incentives, except among, uh, you know, a, a, a very small percentage of, of people around the world to have those kinds of conversations. And I, I liken this one to the, 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 kind, the, the changes in our social norms, uh, for example, around same-sex marriage in many countries over the last just 20 years. You know, uh, how, how has it become, how, how has uh, 
same-sex marriage become normal to a significant percentage of people who several generations ago would have, would have seen that as entirely abnormal. There's no reason why we can't not just envision, but facilitate the same kind of societal evolution uh, that has taken place around women's suffrage, around civil rights, around human rights, around um, slavery, around uh, same-sex marriage. Why can't we do the same thing in, in one generation around nature and around climate change? And so social incentives matter significantly. Um, and and the, final, the final one is, is really the, the simplest. There's so many different uh, examples, but in some ways it's the newest. And we call it choice architecture, but it's really, uh, how do you make things really easy for people uh, uh, to do? And you know, one example for, from Europe is, in the United States, we let people make uh, decisions about whether or not they're gonna donate their organs in the case of some calamitous accident, which leaves them not needing some organs anymore. You have to opt in. In many European countries, you actually are signed up when you get your driver's license to, and you have to opt out. You have to decide and check a box to say, no, actually, I don't want to share my organs with anyone who might need them after I no longer need them, which means you get upwards of 90% of people just opting uh, in to uh, organ donation programs. Whereas in countries that, that have the default being opt out, you get 10 or 15 or 20%. And so just by making a, you know, the right decision really easy to make, uh, we can influence behavior. So in summary, sorry that that's so long-winded, but I think it's really important to recognize emotional appeals, social incentives, uh, and choice architecture are three wholly underutilized uh, toolkits that will make a difference over the next 10, 15, 20 years in shifting climate-smart behaviors. Fascinating, fascinating. Now, the Drawdown 100, how did you go about doing this? And can we talk then about some of the key insights? Yeah, it was really a simple question. I, I remember t I took the Drawdown book home uh, one weekend and, and um, you know, skimmed through it and ended up just talking about it with everybody I knew over the course of a couple of days. Monday morning, I asked uh, my team here at Rare, so how many of these behaviors, these, these, let's call them behaviors because they're behaviors like considering rooftop solar or, uh, eating a plant rich diet. You know, you don't have to stop eating all meat, but the more veggies you eat and the, and legumes and the less animal protein, um, the better, uh, it is for the planet and, and, and for climate change, composting, food waste, for farmers uh, in certain parts of the world, silvopasture, you know, planting trees in the middle of pastures uh, or no-till agriculture, regenerative agriculture. You know, there's, there's 30 uh, on a list like that that an individual uh, consumer, an individual farmer uh, could, could pretty easily adopt. And so then the question was, well, how significant are those? Because the, the most common narrative is it's all about clean tech. We need new batteries. We need wind and solar, maybe nuclear. And without those, we're never going to address the problem. The reality, though, is when you, when you really look at the numbers, those things matter significantly. There's no question. We need 
to change uh, our, the, the composition of our energy sources globally. We need to get rid of coal. Uh, we, we need to transition to wind, to solar, uh, to, to renewable energy, period. But that only addresses maybe 30, 40% of the problem. There is a huge problem that is, comes right out of every household and every workplace and our dinner tables. And it's what we eat, how we eat it. It's how we travel. It's how we transport our, our goods. It's, it's how we uh, uh, bring energy into our homes. And so it turns out 30 of those 100 behaviors that, is, that, that are in our daily control amount to somewhere between 20 and 36% of global greenhouse gases, meaning there are 30 behaviors we could adopt over the course of a year that would address one third of global greenhouse gases without an act of Congress, without a fancy new technology. So why aren't we making it personal? Why aren't we making climate change personal? There's so much we, the people as individuals can do while we're asking. In fact, it, it makes then our appeal to our politicians even more credible because we've already done our part. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can you identify maybe three or four uh, solutions that you found are the most impactful for individual behavior? I would say the two at the top of the list are adopting a plant-rich diet and reducing food waste. Those two together, um, I'd have to get back to you with the exact percentage but I think just adopting a plant-rich diet and dramatically reducing food waste yourself, the, you know, of the food that you eat, um, adopted en masse, that could represent potentially 15, maybe 20% of global greenhouse gases. Right. Now, when you say en masse, what kind of assumptions do you make here? I mean, what are we talking about? 20% of a nation, 30%? 100%. What kind of figures are you talking about? Unfortunately, that's, the, that's part two of the study, and we're about a week away. Um, so I, I can't answer that. But it means a significant percentage of the population. Uh, so I, big round figure, I would guess, if we can get to a billion people, um, we're well on our way. Absolutely. Now, clearly, the situation, uh, I mean, particularly when it comes to food, you mentioned that is very different in the developed world from the poorer parts of the world. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, if you want to, I think many people who think about uh, diet understand this. Um, there's, a, there's a great adage, if, if you, if you want to live like a wealthy person for a very long time, you want to eat like a poor person in the developing tropics, meaning you want to eat a lot of vegetables you want to get a lot of your protein from legumes, from beans, um, beans and, and vegetables uh, with, with a little bit of carbohydrates, let's say from, from rice, uh, is a very, very healthy diet. And as uh, people in the, in the developing world move into the middle class, they tend to want to emulate the diets of those in wealthier nations, more meat, uh, especially more red meat. And um, the, the, that comes with a great cost uh, to the environment. It also comes with, with great health risks. You know, um, one of the greatest risks to uh, uh, adults in the United States, uh, one of the greatest health risks uh, for coronary and heart disease is uh, our meat-rich diet. And so shifting a diet isn't just for, for, for climate change, it's also uh, 
a good way of improving your own prospects for health. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, what do you know about the pace of change? Clearly, we've seen uh, when it comes to uh, the internet, I guess, and social media and, and, and many kinds of social phenomenon, pace of change can be breathtakingly fast. Things come in vogue and change quickly. When it comes to these kind of behaviours we're talking about here, when it comes to food, when it comes to, I guess, awareness and, and, and behavioural change, what do you know about how change happens and the pace of which change happens? Yeah, one of, one of the things that drives our work at Rare uh, for, and has for a long time is the, the theory of diffusion of innovation. This is the, uh, based on the work of a, a guy named Everett Rogers, a, a researcher from a, literally... Uh, 30, 40 years ago, who was the first to, to look at the way that new strategies, new techniques for farming spread farm to farm uh, across the country. And, and what he identified is the pattern that many use to describe Silicon Valley uh, adoption of, of new innovation today. So it's interesting. It, it really hasn't changed. Usually there's 1% of the population that you might call the innovators. People usually uh, mention the early adopters, but actually that's the second uh, stage uh, of adoption. The innovators are the people who, you know, order the phone bef- while it's being designed because they're so excited about uh, the company or a new technology, and they're just always at the bleeding edge uh, in a particular sector or segment. And so those those innovators, that one percent, are the vegans. I would say today, uh, when it comes to a plant rich diet. They're the people who ordered the Teslas online three years before they were available. Um, those, are, those are the innovators. The innovators are usually the ones that are able to then provide testimonials to the early adopters who are often much more influential. The early adopters are the one who, who hear about it first, who, who tend to write about these things or who are very vocal about their, you know, their latest purchase, the newest gadget, the newest trend. And that's only about two, three, four uh, percent of, of a population, the early adopters. Those are the, really the trendsetters, though. And so those, they matter. Um, what's interesting is there's a, a body of, new body of research now that would say that whereas in the past what you wanted was to very quickly get to, you know, from the early adopters to, to get them to spread the gospel to the masses. And, and the reality is, Campaigns are far more effective if they leverage really tight bonds between those early adopters, you know, that next two and a half percent, let's say, and then the next segment, which we would call early, the early majority. And so from from the innovators to the early adopters, then finally, what matters most is to the early majority, which is maybe 12, 15 percent of a population. So once you have... uh, the innovators, the early adopters, and you're beginning to get to most of the early majority, you're getting to what, what has been described as the tipping point. You know, when Malcolm Gladwell wrote The Tipping Point, most of the, 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 that, the, the good ideas came from the, the 70 years of uh, academic work and life of uh, Everett Rogers. The tipping point comes when you are really getting to the point of having um, – the, the first 15 to 20 percent of a population adopting new behaviors. So if you think about climate change, we're now at a point in the United States where 60 or 65 percent of Americans 
believe that not, not only does climate change exist, it's taken a while to get there, by the way, but that it's man-made. Um, the, the, the question becomes, what percentage of Americans now believe that changing their diets, reducing food waste, uh, putting uh, rooftop solar on their homes, figuring out how to finance them, changing the way they get to work, thinking more purposefully about where the products they buy come from, you know, and so on and so on, Yet signing up for renewable energy credits, even if they're not going to put panels on their roof, they can agree to, to um, you know, essentially have a better source of energy. There's a whole host of things they can do. Where are we, is the next question, in the adoption of those behaviors? And that's the work that we are about to begin. Um, and we've got we've to be quick about it. Yes, absolutely. Interesting way you presented there in, in terms of the diffusion, as you say. Um, and, and, and coming back to the food point and, and a plant-based diet, clearly that must be a major hurdle in America. I don't know what the figures are, something like 100 kilos of red meat and poultry or something um, eaten in, in the United States every year, just massively embedded in food culture and in, in, in the U.S. generally. Yeah, this is this is a way, the way uh, many Americans self-identify. Um, you know, in in the fifties, when when modern technological uh, industrial America was really established as a kind of culture, you know, it was uh, uh, there was a role for for uh, a male outside of the the home. There was a, a stated role for for uh, a spouse inside the home. Uh, there were several three square meals a day and most of them had meat in them um i think about a you know my my great uncle whose favorite breakfast on sunday was double fried chicken steak gravy biscuits a couple of fried eggs and sausage you know and I, you just shudder to think about he of course eventually died of a of heart disease but that that sort of emphasis on meat uh being a measure of wealth has been and continues to be part of the culture uh, for some Americans. Uh, and increasingly, it, it is an aspirational value for many people in the, in the developing world. So how do you change that social norm? You know, what's interesting, I just saw last week, um, Jay-Z and Beyonce wrote the forward to a new cookbook that's all about vegetarianism and veganism. You see celebrity chefs now trying to transition the composition of the American dinner plate so that it, instead of having a vegetable, the vegetables be the garnish, uh, the protein, the meat, you know, the fish or the steak or the chicken should actually take up less than a third of the plate. It should be kind of a garnish for the vegetables and for the legumes. So the trendsetters, uh, you know, that, that the innovators moving towards the early majority, I would say, are on the right path. The question is, how do we accelerate that change? Not because we, we need a sort of, um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't feel, uh, like, um, I, I guess I should say, I feel no qualms about working to shift the diet of, uh, uh, of others because it is in everyone's best interest, both from a dietary standpoint and from a natural resource standpoint, from the longevity of our, of our species that we evolve the way we inhabit the planet in order to make sure it continues to support us over time. We have co-evolved. There's no reason we can't, uh, you know, prompt 
or steer a little bit of our own evolution, uh, especially around the, the way we live, given that we're already doing it uh, genetically, we're already doing it scientifically and technologically. I think socially, we need to, to change our lifestyles faster than our climate is changing, or we're no longer going to be uh, in control. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, now, um, just one other question at an individual level. The message is that as an individual, there is a lot we can do. You've identified these drawdown solutions, as you say, that, that are, are very impactful. What about actually also communicating and sharing the message? What are a few insights or lessons for people? Um, you warned us about spouting statistics at people about the benefits of different kinds of things. How can we be catalysts of uh, individual uh, behavior change. I think one of the one of the insights from the, the technology world, if you if you, uh, it's a, it's a, it's vivid in in my in my memory was sort of the first few times at an airport or or out on the street that I saw someone talking on a cell phone, because that behavior was so visible, um, at first startling. You know, it seemed like a very public. Speaking on the phone used to be such a private matter. You know, you'd you'd have a room for the telephone and there'd be a booth and it'd be very private. And and now people walk around with headphones just spouting their daily business or their, you know, their personal stories. That was a big transition, but it, because it was so visible, it it caught on and spread very quickly. And so the question is how do we make visible, how do we make seemingly so normal a number of these new behaviors? And I think social media offers us a huge opportunity uh, for normalizing climate smart behaviors. So what I, would, what I would look for over the next few years is, is just the number of stories and sharing. You know, is there a way for us to get social credit um, among our friends for the good work that we document? What, what I'd be looking for in the, in the coming years is uh, a way for climate smart behavior to, to offer a kind of social status. You know, if I were designing a campaign, it would be uh, to to figure out how people get paid socially and emotionally for being on the right team, for doing the right things. That's how we're going to normalize these behaviors. So to, social media uh, in some ways can be very polarizing, but it can also create new social norms and new identities. And clearly, homo sapiens need a new one as stewards of our atmosphere if we're if we're going to make it through this uh this next phase of our evolution. What about government? Do you really believe this kind of individual social change, behavioral change can take place without huge government support? I think policy change is critical. I don't see it as either or. I think it's almost um, mutually reinforcing. I think often you have to get people, you know, why do people march in the streets? Why do organizers want people marching in the streets? It's, it's for a couple of reasons. One, it's to show politicians that there's a movement, that there are voters, that they are mobilized, that they will take action. It is also to help people identify as being part of the solution, as being part of the movement, so that they'll vote um, in a way that aligns with the actions they've already taken. And I think people, people don't realize that that's also what's going on when you see public manifestations. So Voting matters. Policy, at the end of the day, is what codifies social change. You can't get most policies in place unless you're living in a dictatorship without having a, a constituency 
uh, behind those changes. You know, we live in a democracy. Uh, I ho- still hope we do in the United States. And so often politicians, I-, I like to say, don't usually lead. Politicians read the polls very carefully. They know what they can get away with. Politicians mostly follow where 60, 65% of the population is. So I think it's incumbent upon us if we want change to help move the population as part of the process of moving politicians. And this gets lost on um, many uh, proponents of advocacy work, especially those who live uh, you know, here in Washington, D.C., who think, well, if I can convince the politician, you know, we probably can get the policy passed. Well, there's a lot of uh, climate legislation that never got passed because the politicians got out ahead of their constituents. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, there there are lots of obstacles. I mean, you talked about the mobile phone. I guess that was a very good example of what, what for people, they got an advantage right away and it opened up a whole, you know, communications media world for them. When it comes to, let's say, taking some of these changes, there's a cost associated with it, um, however you measure those. And uh, I'm just wondering if you talk a little bit about um, the status quo. If you take, for example, agriculture, you know, big agriculture, powerful politically and uh, financially and, and, and has an impact. And, and clearly the fossil fuel industry as well with the subsidies and so forth. I don't know to what extent you have any reflections on uh, vested interests. I think, look, vested interests have been there. They will, they will always be there. Hopefully there'll be a new array of vested interests. I think increasingly there, there, there is uh, a new message to offer the incumbents, and that is that there is a lot of money to be made in new technologies that recognize our new climate reality. So as I go uh, shop for food in my local market, and I see that there's now an entire row out of out of the ten in my local supermarket, one entire row is dedicated to, um, I would just say, vegetarian, vegan. Uh, alternative diets. Um, many of the other, even in the fish or beef, you know, poultry sections now, um, a third to a half of the products have some labeling that, uh, or some certification that shows an intention that is increasingly aligned with our new climate reality. So from, from the food we eat to the energy that we consume, there are hundreds of billions of dollars, you know, moving towards trillion, a trillion dollars in investment in wind and solar and alternative energy. Those were not mainstream investable propositions 20 years ago. Today, I wouldn't even call those impact investments. Those, that, that is mainstream investing. That Those are mainstream energy producers today. Um, you have Tesla outselling BMW and Audi and Porsche in the United States, something unthinkable, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago. Um, so whether it's transportation, energy, the way homes are being built, the way buildings are being certified, or the food that we're buying, I think there's a revolution about to come in clothing, you know, the, the material that we buy, that we wear, we, we tend to give ourselves a pass on. But the, the, the millennials, uh, uh, are being raised in an, in, in an information-rich environment where value and meaning is as much a part of 
a brand or as is, you know, what would traditionally be called it's, it's, it's fashion. And, And so the world's changing and industry will follow because they're going to want to be providing the, 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 the products and services that the market wants. If we can shift uh, our social norms, you know, the economy uh, will follow. Uh, so there is a real opportunity there as well to change the marketplace because it's fluid. It's changing. Yes, yes. I Just one last question connected to that. The, the quality of information we have about our lifestyles, the impact uh, of, of buying particular products and so forth, our carbon footprint of different products and so forth, labeling and that kind of thing. Very important. How uh, have you factored that in? Have you looked at that? What, what needs to happen here? I mean, clearly it comes from uh, regulatory is important, but also I guess you're suggesting that, uh, that organizations or corporations will respond as well to help uh, clarify what kind of choices are available and the impact of, of different choices. It's really important. I mean, knowledge, knowledge is power, no question. And putting more knowledge in the consumer's hand makes the uh, knowledgeable consumer more powerful. And companies know this. You know, we've done a lot of work in fisheries over the last seven or eight years, and especially fisheries in the developing tropics. If you look at fisheries globally, less than 10% of fisheries are certified, have real, valuable, uh, reliable, verifiable information about where the fish comes from, how it was handled, under what conditions it was caught or, or cultivated. And that's only about 10%. And, and yet we, you know people care where their food comes from. There are real challenges to getting that, the information. Uh, it, at one point the challenge was that people didn't care. Today people care. Uh, at one point companies didn't necessarily care because they weren't worried so much about <clears throat> scarcity. Today every, every major corporation that's selling fish and moving it around the world is somewhat concerned about their the reliability of their supply because of climate change, because of overfishing. And so there, there are a variety of new technologies um, from apps to traceability tracking to uh, new experiments with blockchain that are enabling uh, the provision of reliable data so that not just the consumer, but the company handling and shipping uh, a, f- a fish to a market can have a real understanding of, of, um, of, 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 of where the fish is, uh, the sustainability, and, and essentially, bottom line, it's sustainability. So the, the question is, can we do the same thing for cotton, for rice, uh, for corn, for wheat, for legumes, for soybean? Uh, and increasingly, that's happening with the proliferation of information technology. It's getting so much easier to be able to trace what you're eating all the way back to the farmer that grew it or picked it or, 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 or caught it. Uh, and that's that is a revolution in the making. Um, then the question is, so what's what's the dashboard that we carry around with us each day? You know, part of me thinks, God, it, it's such a shame that we have to do a carbon accounting every single day. You know, but what I imagine is uh, paying my monthly uh, uh, credit card bill or looking at my monthly bank statement. It wouldn't be very hard to create an algorithm that would let me see on a monthly basis essentially what my carbon footprint is. 
you know, the, the, the algorithm could, could collect the data, run the numbers itself, and then print out, you know, here's the gross tonnage of carbon that you've emitted, and click here, and you can offset all of the emissions that you haven't been able to avoid yet with the changes in your own behavior and lifestyle. Um, but if you wanna do more than just be carbon neutral, if you wanna actually move towards drawdown, you know, maybe you offset uh, 30% more than, than neutrality would require. And I think we're, we're gonna get to the point where whether it's a carbon tax or whether it's a, a, a sort of app and a social incentives or some economic incentives, the future is gonna look like us knowing a lot more about our carbon footprint on a daily basis based on the dollars we spend uh, so that we can be much more capable of managing our own footprint. That's where we have to end up. Yes, the great idea that drawdown app that at the end of the month t t takes our all our spending and uh, converts it into the uh, implications and 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 how we you know, need to change our behaviour to to reach drawdown in these particularly in these particular uh, areas. Now, um, looking to the future, what's on the agenda? You talked a little bit about some research coming up, and I understand also there's a conference. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about what's on your mind, what your, what your priorities are going forward? Yeah, we have three big goals for behavior change in the in the conservation and climate change space. One is to build much greater demand for among practitioners and leaders to use these insights. Uh, one is to provide an evidence base to, to spur much more research to demonstrate to the to the the scientists that in, within our field that there really is uh, proof that these things work. And then finally, is to build capacity. We we want to help train. Uh, a legion, you know, a, 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 a network of thousands of conservation leaders and climate advocates to be more effective in influencing behavior, uh, to be more effective in leveraging emotional appeals and social incentives, you know, and choice architecture uh, to to move the masses so that we can all live more sustainably. So towards that end, um, we're coming out in in the spring with a kind of manifesto, rares writing with the behavioral insights team. Uh, in that was created at 10 Downing after uh, David Cameron and, and, and team read Nudge, that influential book 10 years ago by Cass Sunstein and the Nobel Prize winner uh, Richard Thaler. Uh, we're going to write a, a sort of a, a, an introductory guide to behavioral insights uh, and nature conservation. We're holding on March 19th at National Geographic in partnership with uh, the United Nations Development Program, National Geographic, the Nature Conservancy, Conservation International, World Wildlife Fund. We're hosting what we call Beehive, which is sort of a behavior and environment hive, several hundred people comparing notes uh, and building collective visions for how to tackle with hundreds of other organizations the kinds of behavior changes that are needed around food waste, adopting plant-rich diets, uh, getting to work in a more sustainable ways, um, and then over time, our hope is that this becomes a new field, you know, the field of um, applying behavioral insights and design thinking to uh, nature conservation uh, and climate change. Fantastic. That's great. Uh, uh, menu of work ahead. And I wish you the very best of success with that, Brett. And thank you so much for joining me today 
and providing all these uh, rich insights into how we can all make a greater contribution and deal with these uh, our climate, our, our carbon emissions and, um, and also help communicate about this. So I wish you the best and thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Drawdown Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. We would really appreciate if you could help spread the word by leaving a rating on iTunes, sharing with your friends and on social media. You can find out more about Project Drawdown at drawdown.org. If you'd like to hear leading sustainability and environmental thinkers share their views on the biggest sustainability challenges we are facing, you can listen to the Sustainability Agenda podcast at the sustainabilityagenda.com, iTunes, as well as other leading podcast platforms including Stitcher, Podbean and Google Play.